And we're on the air in five, four, three, two, one. Pencil. When peace comes, remember, it will be for us, the children of today, to make the world of tomorrow a better and happier place. We are beginning to be able, cautiously and with our eyes open, to encourage some interchange of ideas. We have to start thinking about tomorrow. I've heard that somewhere. So I, Dino, don't know anything about comics. As If you listen to the comic book episode, you'll see that I tried. I gave it a shot. My friend Evan Cass, our friend Evan Cass, uh, stepped up to the plate and tried to curate my reading to get me started, but I just can't do it. But local uh, native, Wassa native, what have you, uh, Tim Seeley recently released a trailer for a movie that's based on his comic book work. And so we thought it would be cool if Evan, Cass, and Eric Sorensen talked to Tim on the podcast. And so that's what we have here. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. We enjoyed doing it. Have a good time. All right. So, Tim, how are you doing? Not too bad, man. Uh, I'm in my new apartment here oh. in the city. Uh, I moved in with my girlfriend, so uh, we got a new place. And it's uh, it's right on the Chicago Brown Line, so... You guys are going to get a treat to what it sounds like in my house uh, every couple, about every 17 minutes. <laughs> wow, that's a big move for you, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I was in the place, I, I had that condo for 15 years, and it was, you know, I bought when I was young and stupid and paid too much and just never, couldn't sell it and t- totally had like the, you know, the thing that co- collapsed the economy, the bad loans. I was in that. I was that whole thing. So, uh, yeah, now I'm just now I have like a little office I can sit in uh, and read comics and and drink my beers. It's it's pretty nice. That sounds awesome. So where I'm sitting right now, it's a Thursday night, a little after nine across the street from where my office window looks is my old apartment that uh, you remember from back in the day. And <laughs> I was thinking 18 years ago, almost exactly this this summer, I seem to recall we get together on Thursday nights at nine o'clock and hit the town. Yeah. We do, do yeah, man. Do you remember where we were we young go? swinging guys? Yeah, well, yeah, I guess you could say that. Um, do you remember <laughs> where, what our what our rotation was for the places? The bars we went to, we would always yeah. go to. Um, I can't remember the names of the places now, but the, I think they're all changed. Was Scott Street Steak and Pub was the important one. Right, that's where we ended the night. I think we would start at Zodiac, which I think is now called the Cruise Inn. Okay. And they had quarter tappers. And quarter then we tappers. The quarter tappers. Then we drive uh, to the other side of town and go to uh, break, not breakaway, the other dance club, Bruisers. Yeah, Bruisers. Yep. Spend some time at Bruisers, and then we'd go to the pub and close out the night. <laughs> what glorious days those were! Oh man, that's fun. Yeah, uh, that was sort of. Uh, like the beginning of uh, us as you know adults, right? Like we were, yeah. You know, we were going out in Wassa, and we were like trying to meet ladies and stuff. It was that was pretty. Uh, that was educational. That's yeah, where I would... learned. I got my tolerance for alcohol from that summer. Thank you. Oh, geez, I don't know if I contributed to that. Dino, were you <laughs> uh, a regular at the pub back then, about eighteen years ago? He was. That's where I met Dino actually. 
Dino? He was... He's not, he's, yeah, can um, you hear me? There I am. Yeah, we can um, hear you now. Yeah, so I think I was just sort of coming to the uh, to the end of my run. I'm not exactly sure, 18 years. I'm, I'm really bad with years. But, yeah, no, that's where I met Tim. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's that's sort of my only contact with this. Well, because you, you're the brother of a, a friend of mine, and he'd always told me about you uh, because you were the brother that knew the punk rock guys and knew Henry Rollins. So you were like a legend to me because I was the kid who was into that stuff. And you told me a Nick Cave story once. So sure. I'll always remember that at the Scott Street Pub. Good. Uh, so you were you told me about you, you knew my brother. Yeah, Mario. Oh, I only have one. So that's kind of cool. All right. Good. <laughs> I'll, I'll, yeah, be, Mario, yeah. I'll be seeing him tomorrow. Your so high I'll tell him. Yeah, say hi to him. I, he was always like a guy that I didn't hang out that much in high school until the last maybe year and we realized we liked the same shit, you know? Yeah. So we were into the same uh, movies and music and shit like that. So oh, that's cool. Good. Great guy. All right. I'll see him tomorrow. So Tim, I, I have a couple questions that are more general that I know the answer to, but I think would be beneficial to the people listening in the community to this podcast. And then a few more specific revival and process type questions a little bit later. Um, sure. But the comment and back and forth that you and Dino just had now um, I think ties into my first question. Uh, the name of the podcast is Here You Are, Wausau. And how are you, Wausau, Tim? Like, what's your history in the community and your family? And, you know, how, what roots do you have in this community? So I was born in, in Wausau uh, at the old Wausau Hospital. And then I grew up in Ringel. Uh, I, was, I went to D.C. Everest High School. Um, I left Wausau when I was 19 um, and then I moved to Eau Claire and then to Minneapolis and then ended up in Chicago um, but yeah I still have family there my my parents are there my brother my grandpa uh, my aunts and uncles and stuff are still in Wausau I still spend a good amount of time in Wausau um, probably you know at least every other month I'm back in town I was gonna say that's one thing I really admire about you over all the years I've known you as an adult and your family as I've gotten to know them is just how, even though you are down in Chicago, you're up here a lot, visiting your family and connecting with your family. Um, you have a really nice family. I do. I have, I have one of the nicest families and that's always, you know, of all the things that I could have gotten lucky on, that's, that's when I totally nailed. My parents are great. Everyone's tied. My my younger brother still lives in town, has two kids. Uh, I go see them all the time. My other brother, Steve, who I grew up with um, in Wausau, lives here in Chicago, not not too far from me. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're all pretty tight. Uh, you know, like, uh, I don't know how people do it without close families. I think I would I, – I'm not sure how I would handle some of the shit life throws at me without without that family. So, and, and yeah, part of it is – you know, it's great to always have Wasa area to go back to, you know. So why comics? What got you into comics? And, uh, you know, what? How? what's the process that you went through to become a professional in the industry? Um, yeah, why comics, man? Sometimes I wonder that myself. But uh, when I was a kid, I just, you know, I think about five years old, my, my dad was had read comics when he was a kid. And... Um, at one point we were camping trip and he bought us each, uh, you know, a comic or two and I just totally fell in love with it. It was actually before I could read, um, it was a Spider-Man book and 
I totally fell in love with it. And uh, for some reason, you know, the combination of words and pictures, I just got obsessed with it. And, uh, you know, I just I was a hardcore comic collector as a kid. And and I always had an eye towards I wanted to make them. I don't, I don't even before I really understood what it took to make comics. I had a this just weird need to make them. So I was always drawing little comics and and um, and I, I was make I would make like. And they're really terrible now, but I would make my own comics all through grade school and junior high and high school um, and learned a lot about, you know, how not to make comics, basically, because I had no real idea how it was done. I just knew that I loved them. Um, and then when I got to college, uh, I majored in illustration and uh, I would go to comic conventions here in Chicago uh, and I met other comic creators. So um, they kind of I kind of learned how it's actually done, you know, the kind of paper that's actually drawn on and, and all that sort of thing, how things are published. And um, I ended up getting a job uh, out of college in Minneapolis at a book company. And I kept in touch with this guy who I met when I was in uh, college uh, who named Josh Blaylock, who started a publishing company. And he offered me a job as a basically an editor or art director to come help him out because he got the rights to G.I. Joe. Um, and that was before G.I. Joe was, it had been on kind of a hiatus and wasn't very popular. So I moved down to Chicago. I took the job. Um, I started out as an like editor. Then I became a, uh, like an art director. Then I became the guy who bailed out the artists when they were late. And then I became a full-time artist, uh, working for them. And then somehow I ended up writing comics and that's kind of what I do now. Um, so I've done everything and just you know, kind of failed sideways, I guess, in comics. And now I do it. I've been doing it for a living for 15 years, 16 years. Congratulations. It's kind of cool. Um, you and I have a mutual friend, Craig Thompson. And what I think is interesting, I know you get these questions a lot at conventions and, you know, when you're tabling and talking with fans or young uh, comics creators or you're on a panel uh, talking about, you know, the process of making comics, Craig gets these same questions. How do you break in? And what I think is really interesting with you and Craig is you both are professionals in the industry. It's your living. And you guys, you know, throughout the course of the 90s, went kind of took the two different routes that people said you should take to get into comics. Uh, I think yeah. your route was the small press comics that would then kind of work you into, uh, you know, for want of a better term, more mainstream comics. And Craig kind of did the zine thing and then got his book publishing deals out of that. I think that's kind of neat that you two guys from central Wisconsin who are industries, industry professionals kind of have both sides of that story. Yeah. And we went, I mean, the kind of work we did started out so drastically different. And in some ways we've kind of, you know, gotten to this thing where we both do comics about our hometown. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, breaking in any comics is a myth, uh, because I think it implies that once you're in, that you were suddenly going to have a job and, and, you know, totally be set up. Uh, it's a constant war to, to keep getting work, to make yourself, um, you know, uh, important and, and visible. Uh, so, you know, I mean, as for, as for me, there's, there's this like old saying that breaking into comics is like breaking out of prison. Like, <laughs> You can only do it the way you did it once, and then you can never do it again. You have to find a new way. So, um, I mean, you know, I, I, I sort of 
I was there when, you know, people needed something done. And even if I couldn't do it, I would, I would just do it anyway. Um, so, you know, when I was working on as sort of a art director slash editor at Devil's Do, when it came up that, um, they needed an artist to fill in because we were working with Hasbro and they had such stringent requirements for, for art. And I, I just said, yeah, I can draw an issue. And I just did it. Um, and then later when I was, you know, I just decided I was going to write a comic and I created Hackslash and, um, and it, a lot of it was just a sort of pure ignorance of what something took and a unwillingness to believe that I couldn't pull something off, you know, uh, right. which is something you have when you're young, uh, which is you definitely lose as you get older. But um, I don't know. Yeah, it just, you know, I would always just learn as much as I could and then have this crazy confidence that I'd pull it off, even if I probably shouldn't have. Well, that's the only way you're, you can, you know, get anything done, right? You have to strive for it. And you did. And, you know, way to go. Um, you mentioned you and Craig both doing comics based in the Wausau area, uh, which brings us to Revival. Um, as you're aware, this weekend, uh, Revival, the uh, the proof of concept trailer was a bit of a buzz item in the Wausau area community. Uh, I think that's why Dino wanted to be on to uh, chat a little bit. Um, back in January, uh, when you attended uh, Evercon, uh, I had hoped that maybe we could arrange uh, a panel discussion or a talk where you could share your thoughts on wrapping up the Revival series. And I'd love to get to some of those questions now. So with, with Revival, the comic book, um, what's the origin of that book? Can you give people the pitch and kind of how it came about? And then also, why Basin and Wasa and not some other community? Well, so the, the comic book revival is a series I, I recently finished um, at Image Comics. It is a horror crime series uh, about a pair of sisters uh, in a small town where uh, the dead come back to life uh, one one day for, for no real reason. Anybody who died sort of recently comes back. And there's about 23 people roughly um, in this town, which happens to be Wasa. And... Um, this the the one sister who is a detective is trying to find the murderer of her sister, and her sister is back, uh, and so she's in the picture, even though she's been murdered. So it's um, you know there's there's elements of a zombie story in it, there's elements of a ghost story in it, there's elements of a crime story, but in the in the end it's really just this this story about uh, sisters, um, and their relationship and their relationship with their father, um, and I. I said it, it, it the, the origin, I guess, of, of the story was that I had an idea for to do a zombie story that wasn't about survival, uh, just because so many zombie stories are about, you know, humans uh, having to, you know, you, you lose all the, the modern conveniences and, and, you know, zombies are like a plague. And, and, and I'd kind of seen that story so many times I wanted to tell something different. And at the same time, I had an idea to do a, a crime story set in Wassa. Um, and part of that is because as a kid growing up in Wassa, I, I saw so many crazy things, um, crime wise that, that, that I was, I thought, man, I really have to tell a story about how, you know, things can be so strange in a small town. And, and I mean, not that Wassa is that small, but in, in, um, you know, modern American town, there's this, there's this sort of perception that the really weird stuff only happens in the cities. 
And I've lived in Chicago for 15 years, and I've seen way weirder stuff in, in Wausau than I ever saw in Chicago. Uh, so I wanted to tell a kind of a combination of, of those two things. Uh, and I worked with my studio mate, Mike Norton, who's a, a long, um, long-time collaborator of mine and a good buddy. Uh, so we created it together. Um, I hired my friend Jenny Frizen, who eventually became my sister-in-law, uh, to do the covers. And, uh, yeah, we made this this crazy book and, you know, it was pretty successful. And we, we went five years um, knowing that we wanted to get to the ending. We actually, one of the early ideas for the book was that we wanted it to be, have a sort of mystery angle like the TV show Lost, but we wanted to actually know the ending uh, before we started so we, we kind of conceived of this ending and, um, you know, made a pathway to get there and, uh, you know, and, and actually be able to tie all the mysteries together because we actually knew where they were going. Uh, right. But yes, yeah, so the book, yeah, the book uh, ended in January, I believe. Um, uh, 47 issues plus a crossover with the series Chew. So 48 issues worth of stuff. And uh, yeah, we were, we were pretty happy with what it turned out. It was a lot of work. But it was, you know, I think a real learning experience for us. And I'm glad that I had, that wasn't the first book I tried to take on because it was very <laughs> difficult. But, but uh, yeah, I think it turned out pretty well. Well, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask because I remember back uh, chatting with you in early, I think 2016. You were, you were kind of in the, the final chunk of issues of, of doing the comic. And you said, Evan, never again um, in regards <laughs> to doing a uh, doing a book like Revival in regards to its length and its complexity. Can you talk a little bit about, about why Never Again? Like, what were some of those challenges that maybe you didn't foresee or things that drove you nuts that you really had to work at? I'm just kind of curious about that 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 frustration part of the, the story and how you got through it. Well, I mean, you know, for a standard comic book story, you know, uh, most of the time you have, like, a pretty limited cast. And, and you know, especially in a superhero book, you – have a often you have an established set of characters that you can use. Uh, with Revival, we created basically an entire town. It was a series about a town, and the web of characters and, and relationships and all the things that had to tie together for us to, to play out this mystery the way that we wanted it to. Um, and it was so, so, so complex. And, and, and the thing about comics is, you know, if we were doing a TV show, there's a lot of people working on it and you've got, you know, uh, story editors and, 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 you know, a showrunner and all these people just keep things on track. And when you're doing a comic book, you've got, basically we just had Mike and I, and Mike was usually so busy drawing that, you know, a lot of the story elements and those kind of things were, that was on my, that was on me to figure that stuff out. So, um, yeah, it was a tremendous amount of work. Um, it was a pain in the butt to, you know, at first it was, we got a lot of attention and the book sold really well. And then it became difficult to get attention to the book because it was the same people making it every month. And in, in comics, a lot of the sort of news uh, releases and attention gets placed on the changeover of creative teams and new, you know, new creators, and new characters. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was so much work, but it was it was totally worth it in the end, but there was you know by the time I, when I was talking to you, the end was in sight, but there was just this tiny bit of doubt that I might not pull this shit off, you know that I might get all the way to the end and be like, oh god, 
I have no idea how to get this together, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there was moments of, of, of sheer terror when I was making that book that that I didn't really know where I was going and, and that, you know, but you just, yeah, just, again, that weird sort of confidence that you just have to go, nope, I'll figure it out. I will figure it out. And you just plod forward and, you know, and I think we were pretty successful at, at, at pulling the threads together and keeping it consistent and keeping the quality high and keeping the characters, um, you know, really consistent and making it scary. I think we pulled all that stuff off, but yeah, dude, I never, I would never do it again. Well, you know what? I probably will. I say that and I will complain and I'll, I'll be like, I'm never doing a long-term series again, but I, you know what? I probably will. I will probably do it again. Awesome. Hey, Eric, was there any thoughts you had that have come up that you want to ask him? Wasn't wasn't Hack Slash at one point picked up <clears throat> by somebody to... Yeah, it's still... I mean, are you talking about for a TV show or a film? Fe- yeah, right. Yeah. Feature film, wasn't it? I thought that's what I read, that there was a yeah, feature film. Yeah, we still did was... film to Rogue Pictures, um, and then Rogue Pictures got bought by Universal, and Universal got bought by Comcast, and I don't know, all this stuff. And... <sighs> I think, so it's still out there anyway, right? Well, it is, and I think there might be an announcement by the time you guys release this podcast. There might be, because they're working on something new, and uh, as far as I know, there might be a new announcement. But You heard it I, here first, everyone. Yeah, we'll see. Um, you know, that that side of things is out of my hands, so, you know, it's, I'm, I'm along for the ride as much as, as everybody else is. The one thing that I'm interested in, because I, I haven't read, collected comics for many years, but I was always a big fan of Image, and I'm just curious how you ended up there. Um, I So going back to when I was doing Hackslash uh, for a publisher called Devil's Due out of Chicago, uh, Devil's Due had some financial difficulties and um, sort of, you know, had to close up parts of their publishing business. Um, and basically because I had you know, created Hexlash and was create your own book. Um, I'd had a previous relationship with Image actually very early on when we were working on Devil's Due. I kind of, I, I met, you know, Robert Kirkman who does Walking Dead and Eric Stevenson, who's the uh, editor-in-chief uh, and publisher of, of Image Comics. You know, I met those guys in 2001, 2000, probably earlier. Uh, and we all kind of hit it off. Um, so there was really a, no other place I was going to take Hackslash, um, just because I, I knew, you know, I mean, I grew up reading Image Comics and I always loved them, but also, you know, by the time the 2000s came around, early 2000s, Image was kind of the place to be and, and still is. Um, so, yeah, you know, I pitched Hackslash to them and they took it. And, and then when I came up with a revival, you know, I just I had a good enough relationship with uh, the publishers that I just showed it to Eric and said, hey, I want to do a crime story with zombies. And he went, okay, cool. And that... That was it. Uh, that's never happened to me since, and probably will never happen to me again. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, part of it was just I, I ran, I ran into those people very early. You know, I, I knew Robert Kirkman when he was doing a wrestling comic, and and you know, was writing a, a book called Battle Pope about a pope that fights monsters and stuff. You know, so the, those early connections um, definitely led me to work with Image. Nice. Hexlash is coming back, right? Uh, yeah, I'm working on it. Uh, we will probably announce a new series probably around San Diego or so. I'll, I'll reveal all that stuff. 
Um, Very yeah, it's just that, that book I, I can't get away from. I, um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that people still like it, but I'm always surprised. You know, that's the one that people remember me for, and that's the one that people always bring to get signed. And I can work on all kinds of other stuff and and sell way more copies, you know, but people still remember Hackslash. That's just the way it is. Right. When is San Diego? July. Sometime. July. Okay. Yeah. I had a question again uh, uh, about some of the craft. Uh, you know, Revival was, you know, it, you had this overarching mystery. But then you had all these little mysteries that you kind of chained together to get us to the end. And I remember, I think, around that same conversation around, you know, uh, early 2016, when you were like, oh, never again. You did mention that you had really enjoyed writing mysteries. Um, and you ended up doing that effigy series, like another kind of crime series, mystery series. How do you go about, like, how do you go about constructing a mystery story? Like, what was it about that process that excited you and made you want to do another series that was another mystery? I mean, you know, every time I get excited about doing a mystery thing, then I immediately regret it. But the way that you craft a mystery, at least as far as I know, is that you start at the ending. Um, and you you have to know two things basically is what is the what is the crime that you're going to tell the story about and who is the character affected by it and how are those things you know then you reverse engineer it so you basically have to walk back you know how how you're going to get to this point of this story and how this character is going to navigate this and be changed by the process of, of investigating the mystery. Um, and also, hopefully, you know, part of the idea is that you have to know what it is about this character that makes them uniquely suited to be the viewpoint character for for the reader, uh, and that why are you, why are they important to guide the reader through this story and in, into the mystery, and how will they make it so compelling that that the reader will will follow you through on this long term mystery? Um, yeah, it's hard as hell, man. And it's, but you must I mean, like it because you what like there must be a like is it that process that reverse engineering that you kind of dig? Yeah. So my favorite, I mean, and, and the thing I really love, and I, I think a lot of writers would say this, um, is is the little things, the little accidents that happen, um, because a lot of times when you're writing something, there's a, you, you're just you know you need to get something done, and you're it's very very much. A process and it's it's a toil sometimes but there's these little moments where things connect and like you may recognize uh, like something unintentional and go oh holy crap and it, you get like a buzz off of doing this it's, it's this weird it's like chasing this high because it's such a cool thing when you recognize two des disparate things and put them together and it works and you just it's so cool uh and, and it's almost worth it for all the hair pulling to get those moments. When you're doing a mystery story, it's so important to find those things because you have to connect all these pieces so that the the, the logic, the internal logic, is completely solid. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the fun of it. I mean, it's I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that it's sort of like what you know, lead someone to become a, a detective or, um, you know, or, or just the, any kind of job that is, is problem solving. 
there's something super enjoyable about that moment when you figure something out. Did you ever have uh, in, you know, four star studios or, or at your apartment uh, or your old house, uh, something like that scene that was in, I think it was like about the one third point through uh, revival where Dana has all those strings attaching all these different stories. Is that kind of like the process in some ways? <laughs> kind of. I mean, the thing is, you know, so much of mine happens, you know, just in my head in the off times, you know, it's it, it's such a total cliche, but it's totally true that most of the time I think of these things while I'm like taking a bath or 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 in the bathroom or taking a walk or, you know, or doing something tedious is when the things connect. So I, I have the I didn't have like a big story map or I, I have buddies who who work on these giant story map that looks like you know, an insane person's uh, plan, you know, but it, I, I don't tend to do that. I tend to have lots of notes. I tend to have documents uh, that I, that I add to and sort of, you know, that they're the ever evolving documents, but the, the way that I write is um, I, there's an analogy I always use, which is it's like driving at night in fog, basically like mm. I'm dry. I know where I'm going, you know, I know the location, and I've got the lights on, but I can only see really clearly in front of me, directly in front of me, and I can see a little bit far off, and then everything else is dark. So <laughs> that's the process I usually use. I, I know what's right here and what I have to connect. I know where we're going, but how we get there, it's, you know, it's kind of loose. Sure, sure. Now, obviously, you have the a, you know great support system with uh, with Four Star Studios. Uh, could you, you know, for, for people out there, like, could you describe what your studio is in Chicago and also like, you know, maybe some of the, the, uh, at, when you're doing your writing or your art, like what kind of tools you use if, you know, if people are curious about that kind of stuff? Yeah. So, well, I mean, I, um, I have a studio with, uh, several other art, actually it's quite a few more people now, but we rent a studio space in Chicago. It's in this abandoned not abandoned, but a former um, blinds factory. Uh, there's lots of these sort of abandoned factories in Chicago that they turn into little small businesses and art studios. And uh, it's me and Mike Norton, a designer and illustrator named Sean Dove, um, a designer er, and illustrator named Ryan Brown, uh, artist named Jim Terry. And then we have these floaters with young kids we let work in there. Uh, and basically, they're the ones that provide us with enthusiasm and jealousy because they're young and talented. Um, <laughs> and not but, jaded. <laughs> you know, and not jaded, yeah, not broken yet. Um, but, yeah, and, and part of the process and the idea behind making the studio was to have someone uh, available to, to, you know, uh, bounce ideas off of and to work with. And, um, and I think creative people have a tendency to work very isolated and it can actually be kind of a bummer for your mental health uh to to be by yourself all the time just making something you know um in a cave by yourself so uh you know it's a little bit for companionship it's a lot for um collaboration and uh you know we've been doing it for god like eight or nine years now so we've kind of got to figure no god it might be longer than that but part of it is you know we can do things like revival. Revival came to be 
because uh, Mike and I would walk to lunch and we would talk about something we wanted to make. And in the, you know, in the space between our studio and the Thai restaurant, we would be like, here's this idea. And, and, you know, um, just keep kicking it back and forth. Very cool. Um, anything, Eric, Dino, any thought, any questions for Tim? I don't have anything right now. I'm just enjoying listening to the background of it all. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I have a question, Tim. Uh, I have not finished Revival yet. I'm waiting for that final uh, omnibus to come out. Um, So, you know, I'm not looking for spoilers. Um, But as you're aware, and as the guys on the podcast are, I'm working to hopefully open a comic book shop in the Wasser area in the not-too-distant future. So this is kind of a a potential comic book retailer question uh, sure. that I'm going to share or ask you. This is from a, tw- a Twitter exchange that you had um, right after Revival wrapped, and I'm just going to read it. And I just want to get your your take on, you know, what you said. Um, okay. So it's uh, uh, Tim Seeley. With the end of Revival, I've discovered there's a percentage of comic readers who wait until something ends and well to decide they'll read it. I recall after issue five or six of Revival, people at cons uh, asking me when it was ending so they could check it out. And then you got some wonderful support from your uh, co-creator, Mike Norton, where he said, I'm going to read it now. And then uh, your letterer and friend, Crank, said, me too. Well, not now. I'm going to wait for the last trade. So <laughs> anyways, the, the uh, that exchange there highlights the different uh, corners of comic retail doesn't it? I mean, I'm curious about sure. where you see, like, how that's evolving, you know, the book people versus the the people who buy the monthly versus the people who, uh, you know, uh, pr- prefer to get it on digital, um, and why maybe some people wait for five years before they say, oh, I'm going to give that revival a try. Yeah, I mean, it's, man, I, I mean, this this conversation, we could do it all night, but, but I think a the way the comic industry has changed a lot is that comics used to be this sort of quick disposable entertainment. And it was really about the one-off, like you could dive in anywhere and read a story about Batman and have a reasonable expectation that you knew enough about Batman and that you didn't really have to know anything else. Uh, And, you know, and that's really, it was a great model when comics were being sold as impulse buys on a book rack you know, in a 7-Eleven or at a grocery store. Um, and then as the market has changed and as the world has changed, you know, and, and going back to, to, to what that was, that was also true of television, right? It was true of, you know, you could throw in an episode of Cheers and you could start in the middle and it didn't really matter. You know, you were just, it was something you could get really easily. Hey, it's about a bar and it's people sitting around and that guy's funny. And, um, you got it really easily and there wasn't a heavy amount of continuity necessarily. If there was, it was basically about rewarding the, the long-term invested people. Um, the world and the market and everything has changed in the meantime, um, where now, you know, obviously TV is is all about this sort of serial t- storytelling, um, and, and that's something that comics have, has, have switched switched to quite a while ago, even before TV, but uh, it's, it's really true now. Um, and it's also because the way that people consume comics has changed, you know, it used to be a comic was on the shelf. It was on the shelf maybe for, you know, one week while it was new. And then a month later, it got bumped off the shelf by a new issue. Um, and now, you know, comics come out in, in one format, which is the the monthly comic 
format, but then they're collected in uh, trade paperbacks, and then often they're collected like the way we do it in a deluxe hardcover edition. And there's different kinds of readers now. Uh, there are people who still buy things monthly and, and, and interact with comics that way. And those are the people that I think they're sort of like the early adopters in tech. It's all about being there early and not having things spoiled and being able to experience as it comes out. But I think a larger market for comics now has become the, the trade reader or the trade waiter. Um, people who you know w- would rather binge something and read a big chunk of story at one time. Um, and then certainly, you know, because there's so much content available and so much good stuff, there's a fair amount of people who want to make sure it's great or that it ends, you know, as promised before they're going to take the chance, uh, you know, which I, I totally get, but it's, it's almost as if people are, you know, they're, they're waiting for the investment, the wait for the early adopters to say, you know what? Nope. That turned out great. It turned out really well. And they said that they did what they were going to say and they didn't blow it. And the book came out. Um, and it was reliable and it wasn't canceled, you know, and, uh, and, and that those people then will, will, will take the chance. Um, so it's, it's, it's a hell of a thing to navigate, uh, as a creator. And I'm, I think it's probably even harder to navigate as a retailer. I'll but, tell you the research and the work, uh, prepping for a possible store. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of work and I just have to, I think most store owners have to set certain rules for themselves initially and then you know work within those and then adjust and change and evolve to what your clientele request ultimately i guess right yeah and i i think that's definitely the case and you know i i talk to retailers all the time especially my buddy pat who owns challengers and i'm always asking them about retail habits and what readers are doing what they want and you know it used to i mean everything now is the whole market of everything changes every six months uh, so it's, it's, it's hard, man. And it's hard to, as a creative to respond to that. And I think it's hard as a retailer to respond to that, but you know, you're, we're competing for attention with so many other things now, uh, TV, movies, video games, especially that's a big one. Um, and you know, people only have so much time and only so many dollars and, and you have to really make sure you give them something really worthwhile and really special. Yeah, I appreciate that 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 point of view. I know we've kind of talked about things like this in the past, but um, when I knew I was going to be interviewing you, I I thought of that Twitter exchange you had a couple months ago, and I'm like, I got to ask him about that because. Well, the thing is, you know, some people th- I think they thought I was angry about it, and I, no, yeah, I think you're on in the thread. You said that's legit. Yeah, exactly. It's it's I you know, and and a lot of times it's it's not disappointment. It's not. It's just you know noticing the way things are. Um, you know, and, and everything is, is, is going that way. You know, it's the, you're, we're all competing with the Netflix method of, of entertainment delivery. Um, we've only got, what, 10, 15 minutes yet, and we've barely talked about the, well, we haven't talked about the trailer much at all. Um, so, yeah, that was really exciting. That premiered, what, just two weeks ago? Right, yeah, 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 two weeks ago. And one thing I, I noticed and I wanted to ask you about is it seemed that it some of that was filmed here in Wausau. Was All that of it was filmed in Wausau. So did you have the, the director in town? Yeah, the during the weekend of um of the Everest Evercon, we did scouting. Uh the producer was up. Um and then two weekends after that, they came up 
Um, and after we had sort of figured out all the locations and everything, gotten permissions, they came up and shot um, with the assistance of my dad and his yard in some cases. <laughs> and then um, a lot of it was just around Ringle and, um, you know, Burnwood and, and that's, that area off of Highway N is a lot where a lot of that was shot. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, and the cool thing was is that a lot of the stuff we used for reference, when I, t I took photos when I came back to Wausau six years ago um, for Revival, and a lot of that stuff, I had a, the wonders of technology. I had the location still in my phone, so I was able to send those guys a map, and they just were able to shoot the exact things we, we got reference of. And a lot of the stuff was still there. Uh, bummer, bummer is the best barn that looked the most, you know, Wassa to me, um, fell down in the meantime. So oh, we couldn't well, use the barn, but everything else was still there. Yeah, that old log cabin sign. and um, Yeah. I, I, I thought it was impressive. It, it was so neat to see essentially the first few pages of the first issue of Revival made into a film. Yeah. So, Pretty cool. So, yeah. So you're working with this, This uh, you, you mentioned the frustration when you were talking with Eric about the Hack Slash movie and, you know, this being, you know, Rogue being sold to this being sold or whatever. And with this, you're dealing with a small independent uh, production company. And, um, you know, I think that's cool and very interesting and inspiring. Uh, in the article with Keith Ulig, you do say, though, that, man, I hope this wasn't a dumb decision for us. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, just, I just want you to talk about that decision that you and Mike made. Uh, when you were deciding, you know, uh, how to handle doing a revival film? Well, I mean, so very early on when the series came out, we sold the TV rights to it for, we optioned them to NBC. Uh, and they got a script made and they had a director attached. And then this other TV show came out uh, called Resurrection from ABC. And it, they, it was deemed too similar to ours, even though it wasn't similar really. And it just sort of sputtered and went nowhere. Um, and I, I, I don't know. And we, and we, we just thought that, that was such a crap experience. You know, it was such a, it was just a bummer. And, you know, this, the, the idea of working with within the Hollywood system again um, frustrated, with, frustrated me. And I know, and so much of it is, is because, you know, the way things are done in Hollywood is really about the way things are done in L.A., um, and there's just this culture of the way things are created. There's actually an advantage to not making things. Um, and I don't know, it just, I didn't, I didn't really want to do that again. So last year at C2E2, this guy, Luke Boyce, and, um, uh, came up to me and just said, you know, I would love to work with you on something. I'm a filmmaker. You know, he showed me some of his, his short films and stuff. And I thought that they were pretty impressive. And he said, we're out of Champaign, Illinois. Um, and he said, you know, we made me make something new. And we, so he and I caught up for drinks, and, and I just told him, hey, I don't know if you're interested, but we've got the rights to Revival back. And he got really excited. He's like, I, I didn't think that was possible, but that's what I really wanted. And they sort of pitched us on this idea that they could make a film using local crews and, and you know, um, shoot it on location uh, in the Midwest um, have us involved. I mean, one of the things that happens with Hollywood stuff often is that the comic creators are sort of sidelined and replaced by, you know, screenwriters and, 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 and people who work in the system. And I don't know. I mean, we just we kind of thought, 
you know, why not? We, we put all this work in to make a creator-owned comic and to, and to be, have, to have the control and to be participants in every aspect of it. Why not try that with a film, you know, basically a creator-owned movie? Um, so, you know, is, is, it's a little outside the box to do it this way, but I think we live in a world now, you know, speaking of the Netflix model and the, and the, the Hulu and the Amazon, content now is king, and content is more important than the system. And if you can make something really good, like there's a TV show in Chicago, shot in Chicago called Easy, uh, by this guy Joe Swanberg, and he shoots it completely in Chicago, and it's on, it's put on Netflix. Uh, so that was kind of our idea. You know, we can make this, we can make this local, and we can make it our way, and we can, we can deal with the distribution after the fact. Are you thinking? Uh, is this going to be like a film essentially, or a series of films? Are you thinking? Oh man, we don't want to think that. We, I mean, we're definitely thinking a film for now. I mean, you right. know. It's popular enough. Definitely, we would make we could make more films, but sure. Um, yeah, you know, and this is just we have a script and and it's really good. And um, I worked on it, but we hired this woman, uh, Sarah Fisher, to come in and sort of do the doctoring. Like I could provide the dialogue and beats and stuff, but we, and we wanted someone who really was familiar with film and structure. And, um, and I got a little bit schooled. It was like going to you know, a graduate level course in screenwriting to watch her work. So, you know, and that was the other thing about this that Mike and I were interested in is we would get to work on this film. If they, if they make the film through a Hollywood system, it's likely again, that we would just be booted off and then we would, it would be filmed in, you know, I don't know, Canada or, or Russia or who knows, we'd be filmed somewhere else to keep the budget down and we wouldn't be there. And in this case, you know, we're going to be there. I'm thrilled for you guys. Uh, Eric Dino, do you have any uh, questions or thoughts? No, I, I'm just sort of absolutely enthralled by this. So, no, I'm loving this at all. Keep going. Well, I, think, I think that as you're rewriting the script for film, that there's a, a strong opportunity for narration, like uh, podcast folks or you know, some <laughs> podcast hosts that you could probably bring in and Sure. Yeah, we'd be we'd be happy to do it. <laughs> well, it's very kind of you. <laughs> now, this was a proof of concept trailer, so this is essentially just uh, this is what it would look like, right? Or you know, what's the yeah? Where's that well, we in wanted the stage? to do yeah, and that was really important to us was to show, you know, what one what we can do, what what Luke and his crew can do, um, and then also you know how great something can look on. On the way, on the way that they do things, um, and, and you know, shop in the actual area where the book is set. So, um, and, you know, and, I'll, and part of it is, you know, if we were a big studio, just announcing it would be enough. But we're not a big studio; we're individual creators. So, having this to say, this is how serious we are, I think, really, you know, gets home this idea that that we're really invested in doing this. Well, and I think it's, I mean, like I said, I think we're all thrilled for you, but I think the city itself is thrilled. I mean, you know, it was, I think, I guess the cover piece on Sunday uh, in the Herald. So people are excited. And if you're going to be kind of bringing it to the, to the fields of Marathon County, that would be kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, when was the last time a movie was shot in Lhasa, right? It was There was that movie, uh, it was a baseball movie with Martin Cove, like in the late 90s. I can't remember what it was called, The Hitman or The... Yeah, that was, oh, God, that that was that softball movie that, uh... Yeah, Marco from... Jay Klingbeil, Jay... Yeah, because he went to my church. He was, uh... Jay Klingbeil was the guy who brought it to town. And, uh, shit. Yeah, it's a movie about softball. How the hell should I know what that was? You know, I don't... I wouldn't know at all. But, I mean, any movie that was filmed at Kellyland Bar and, uh... Sunnyvale Park just seems absurd to me. So, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't there something about wrestling too? Wasn't there a wrestling movie filmed in the area? Well, I know, oh, and my... there's that guy that, that that is making the movies now, the indie guy, which is cool. That there's a dude making stuff. Right. Um, that's pretty cool. And then, of course, Giant Spider Invasion uh, with uh, Alan Hale. That's a Wasa movie. Uh, so, got a proud uh, legacy to live up to. And it's gone back a ways. I mean, a, a river runs through it was had a big Wassa connection, and that was a Robert Redford film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very cool. So, what are your current what are your current uh, uh, projects right now, comics wise? I'm working on Nightwing for DC, and I have two other books at DC that I haven't been announced yet, so uh, I probably can't talk about them. And then I've got. Um, another, I'm trying to do it, my creator own book, a kind of follow up to revival, a new project that I want to do at image comics. And, um, then obviously this movie stuff. So yeah, man, I'm, I'm keeping, keeping busy. Are you going to be anywhere for free comic book day? I will be in Phoenix, Arizona on Saturday. I leave tomorrow yeah. morning. So yeah. Have fun going there. Yeah. It's always nice to, to hit up, uh, Arizona has a, for whatever reason, it was the first place I ever signed when I started in comics that wasn't like in my backyard. So, so that causes there's there's a solid base of Hackslash fans there because that's kind of like the first place I went, uh, and they remember, you know, they remember that we were we we went to them first. Awesome. Well, that's all I got. Do you know when Eric? All right, cool. So then, uh, what we usually do, like I said, is offer some sort of. Uh, shit that we're currently interested in so uh i'm i'm gonna uh pass this to evan evan do you have something for us yes um so when i got my my kobo e-reader got already about five years ago still using it it's a great piece of uh hardware um they allowed me to get one book for free and i i got the hobbit which i've read so many times over the course of my life um, and it had just been sitting on there and I was looking to read something a few weeks ago and I'm like, you know what? I have the Hobbit on there and I haven't read it. And, you know, there was a period of time where I would read the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, you know, every year when I was in junior high and high school. And then I think the last time I read them was around the time of the movies about 15 years ago. And I'm 40 now. And I, I wanted to see how revisiting those books would, would be. And so I read the Hobbit. And I was hooked in a way I've never been hooked before. Went to the three Lord of the Rings books. And now I'm on to the Silmarillion, uh, which oh, no. I've never read before, and uh, the Untold Tales. So I'm going to, I'm calling it my uh, Middle Earth Spring, and I'm enjoying it. And what I'm connecting with, you know, I'm 40 now. And, and I think just being mindful of, of, of the fact that I'm not getting younger, there's a real pensiveness and melancholy that, um, especially, 
you see when the elves are on on the stage essentially and some of what they're saying and their time is 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 wrapping and there's a new era coming a new generation i'm really connecting with that and you know actually you know finishing up a return of the king a few days ago i cried like three times over the course of the final chunk of that story it was just hitting me uh in a soft spot um that i think i could not have appreciated as a younger person so that's what i've been grooving on tolkien good call tim what about you um, so back in the day, I was really into mystery science theater. Like, even, you know, when it was, I was living in Eau Claire and it was for college and it was still on the public, you know, uh, Minneapolis public, uh, TV and it was, then it was moved to sci-fi and I just always loved it. You know, the, these guys riffing on the crappy movies, they've got the new Netflix series and I'm really enjoying it. I think they captured a lot of the, what made the old show great. But they sort of up the joke level. They have so many jokes flying. Um, new cast is really good. The movies they picked were pretty inspired and surprisingly not used by all the other riff type recordings that go on. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy with it. I'm really glad that it's uh, it's so solid. And they riff on Stranger Things too. Uh, they haven't done that. They, they they do the they're doing straight up like how Mystery Science Theater did with. Really crappy B movies. Um, nice, but uh, yeah, it's it's pretty great. Eric, what do you got? I uh, discovered this week something called a, a fidget toy, and uh, it's just this little thing that spins. It's got some ball bearings in it, and it's supposed to. It's made for kids with autism and ADHD, and I don't have those things, but I feel like I suffer from a lot of those anyway so I've got this little toy that I play with all the time that keeps me focused I think cool it just might be a toy that I enjoy to play with as well (laughs) sure (laughs) um for me it uh so most of my television or sort of the the binge worthy binge watching of things is like uh Tim talked about sort of on Netflix and so I discovered the the TV show Into the Badlands this oh uh, yeah this spring and uh, it sort of fits into just kind of you know all the awesome shit that I like in life you know sort of samurais and westerns and motorcycles and uh, you know just kill there's motorcycles in it too yeah there's motorcycles in it yeah so really? that's kind of fun wow. and tattoos and so it's all it's all the things that I really. It, it's weirdly, you know, kind of personally pornographic for me, so I kind of like it a lot. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go back too, and and since we haven't talked since the new Kendrick Lamar album came out, oh, I'm gonna yeah. push, plug that too because it's something else. Yeah, so Tim, Eric, and I are like very old school hip hop guys, and so like the I think the chain what Kendrick Lamar has done on this record and just has changed hip hop completely. So even Miley Cyrus talked about it recently. So it's kind of fun. And I just <laughs> always want to know what she thinks of hip hop. Right. And always. I just, I just managed to, <laughs> to get Miley Cyrus into the podcast. So that's kind of fun. So, uh, well done. Yeah. So, Hey, thanks. Thank you so much for doing this. Tim. It, uh, it means a lot to us. Hey, thanks for having me on. And, and good to talk to you again after what is it? At least 20 years yeah, at this point. Yeah. So, um, if you could just send us all the links to the cool shit that you want us to to put up on the webpage, and we'll and we'll make sure to put those up. and uh, And thank you, thank you, and thank you so much, Tim. Thanks, Eric, and thanks, Dino.
These men come down here from New York to, to find out my reasons on rock and roll music and why I preach against it, and I believe with all of my heart that it is a contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. Why I believe that is because I know how it feels when you sing it. I know what it does to you. And I, I know uh, the evil feeling that you feel when you sing it. I know the, the, the lost position that you get into and the beat. Well, uh, if you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is about rock and roll music that they like, and they'll, the first thing they'll say is the beat, the beat, the beat. Jezebel experience They never cut their hair But made a 